I'm your host, Rabbi Linda Schreiner Khan, and welcome to Tehillah Talks, where teens engage in honest conversation with their rabbi about what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Welcome to a special edition of Tehillah Talks. Hi, I'm Jasmine. I have been on other episodes of Tehillah Talks, all of them. Um, (laughs) And um, yeah, I really wanted to do this episode today because it's, you know, affected me personally, like stigmas around mental illness, mental health, and what is, it's just something I want to talk about and something that interests me as well as is personal to me. And with that, we welcome Rabbi Pam Wax, who works in this area uh, with pastoral counseling and uh, at Westchester Jewish Community Services out of White Plains, New York. Okay. So welcome, Pam. Thank you. Good to be here. Subject Uh, that's also dear to my heart. So there's a stigma around mental health and my first sort of question is, is there a greater stigma in the Jewish community than there is in other communities? About Statistically, I can't answer that question. But I do, but I do, well, you know, what I do know is that parents of those who have mental illness, because of our general wealth and well-to-do-ness in the Jewish community, there's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses, quote-unquote, and a lot of fear about families being exposed as not normative, um, that may be greater because of those issues in the Jewish community. You know, and and that's, we have failure to launch issues that I think Jewish parents tend to take harder than might be felt in other families also because of, you know, you have this one going to law school and this one going to medical school and there are those kinds of issues. But yeah, stigma is big, and it's it's big for those who are suffering with the mental illness, and it's big for the families. My question is, what's normative? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that is the $1,000 question, mm-hmm. because one in five people will have a mental illness. So that's, that's a huge percentage. And so we have to say that's normal, right? <laughs> um, and we all know somebody who deals with mental illness. It's not, it's no longer so private. Um, we know people and yet we still have the fear and the silence around it that is very sad in the Jewish community because we've been at the forefront of so many social justice movements. And I believe we should be at the forefront of this particular one and are not yet there. And I think some of what needs to happen, rabbis need to be speaking about it from the pulpit. We need to have a Misha Baruch list, the list for the sick that includes people who are suffering from mental illness, not just from physical illness. Because if we normalize it in that way, we will destigmatize. I think we should have, like with any other transitional ritual, for those who are comfortable coming out about their own mental illness, that it's something that can be spoken about by them from the Bema, you know, a coming out kind of ritual, you know, holding the Torah, saying a blessing, you know, and educating the congregation, but we're not there yet. I think there's a lot we can do. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think um, 
a lot of the stigma stems from a sense of otherness. And I think a lot of that has to do with even though such a large percentage of people have mental illness, it's an invisible illness most of the time. And the only time it's a visible illness or the only time it's recognized um, historically is when it's being perceived as dangerous. You know, like people only, people used mental illness as like for a really long time and still uh, that's what I was talking about in my questions that I sent about, you know, demonization mm-hmm. and, like, um, violent stereotypes. Um, it comes from, I think, the fact that uh, society doesn't pay attention to mental illness unless it's... Until. Until. Until there's drama. Until there's until drama. Until there's drama, but also until it's, like, something that breaks the norms. That's like, what I mean by drama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I think, you know, we have to get the message out there that most people who have mental illness are not violent. Yeah. And that message isn't out there. Yeah, because it, the reality is, well, there's there's a few different parts of this, which is the first one is that non-normative behavior isn't dan- shouldn't be immediately perceived as dangerous. It can, can be dangerous. Obviously, everything can be dangerous. Um, there are violent people of, of everywhere, <laughs> but... Someone shouldn't be treated immediately as a threat for, like, for exhibiting symptoms of mental illness. And also, people with mental illness are vulnerable more than they are violent. If you're struggling mentally, you are in a position of vulnerability, and that can be uh, exploited. So I feel like the... There's just a lot of ways in which the violent or, you know, the violent stereotypes surrounding mental illness can be detrimental. But yeah, it's not just for people who experience a mental illness that is visibly, visibly puts them as like a visible person who is breaking social norms. Um, It's also for people who, it also affects people who have more invisible mental illness because those tend to be normalized like, until they get to such an extreme point that it's, like... So they ignore it in some ways. Yeah, and they get to a really extreme point because of that, because you can write things off if they're just going on in your head. Like, I I mean, like, for example, I have OCD, but I don't have a lot of physical compulsions, and so it took a really long time for me to get diagnosed with OCD Mm. because I wasn't exhibiting very obvious symptoms that affected other people, Mm-hmm. As much as, like, internal compulsions. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there are things that affect other people, like asking for reassurance over and over again. But it's like, you know, it's easy to write off because so much more of it happens internally than externally. Yeah. So it negatively affects people who are suffering with mental illness that isn't visible because it makes it so that uh, their issues are dismissed and... They are unable to receive proper care until it gets to a point where it's visible. Right. It's. Uh, I think of somebody that I know who was uh, at an Ivy League school and had a break. And the break had everything to do with social things going around. But things were happening prior to the break. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But nobody recognized them until the break happened. And the mm-hmm. break was pretty substantial mm. and took years to really work through. And... Yes. So we don't see it right away. 
And I think we can all, you know, if anybody listening thinks back, they're probably going to be able to identify people in their lives who have, if not themselves, have gone through some of these things. But asking for help is really difficult. It's very difficult. And also shifts in behavior are very difficult to share with others. So, you know, someone, my, my friend's mom uh, was ultimately diagnosed as a schizophrenic, but for the earlier part of her parenthood, she was a brilliant math mm-hmm. mathematician, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it just came on mm-hmm. suddenly mm-hmm. or seemingly suddenly. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we need to talk with stigma. We didn't use the word shame yet, mm-hmm. did we? No, yeah. Um, you know, I think shame is a big killer. I use the word killer purposely because, Jasmine, you might not know, but Linda knows that my brother took his life. Saturday will actually be the first yard site. And um, I really believe it was shame. And here I am in the field. I didn't see it coming. He was suffering so silently. His husband didn't see it coming. His friends didn't see it coming. He really suffered in silence and a lot of ignorance, I think, for all of us and a big wake up call about how we all need to learn the signs of depression, bipolar, OCD, you know, help people. Extreme anxiety. Extreme anxiety. All of those are very real. We don't even know how to diagnose and we don't have to be a professional to see that somebody needs help. So navigating through life, um, institutions are key in supporting people who are going through some of these these issues. I don't even want to call them issues. That it's a it's a health issue. Right. Yeah, it's like so. Twenty percent of people have a mental illness. That doesn't mean like something that does tend to because it's good normalization is the goal, but dismissiveness can sometimes be masks as normalization, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it's it's um it's like, you know, also people have psoriasis. <laughs> you know, people mm-hmm. have other, mm-hmm. like, Ill- physical illnesses. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that those aren't illnesses just because, oh, okay, so it's normal, so then it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. It's normal, but it's still something that you need to get treatment for and help for. And, you know, that's the point. Like, the point of normalization is to make help and accessible, not to say that, you know, these issues aren't issues. Because, you know, they are issues, but they're not issues to the, to, like, they're not issues with the individual, you know? They're just a health issue. You're right, yeah. It's and the problem issue. is that is health insurance. Yeah. When we talk about it as a health <laughs> issue. Because health insurance is doing its darndest to not reimburse for so much of mental illness care. Mm-hmm. Um, mental health care, rather. And um, and good mental health is like good physical health. Of course. Right? Of course. Now, and only now is, I wouldn't even say insurance companies, but companies are waking up to the fact that if their employees are physically healthy, they will, they will be better employees. Mm-hmm. They haven't figured out the mental health piece of that equation yet. True. But, you know... Large companies will give support you if you're on Weight Watchers. They'll support you if you go to, to a gym, gym yep. on a regular basis. They'll help yep. pay for that. So why wouldn't they pay or contribute 
to uh, ongoing mental health care. Yeah. There was an article in the Jewish Week um, a couple years ago from a woman about her son's mental illness. And she talks about how they validated his shame. He didn't want anybody to know about his first suicide attempt, so they also kept it silent. And she said, had he been diagnosed with cancer, gastrointestinal illness, severe cardiac illness, or diabetes, we never would have hidden any of those illnesses. But they, they were complicit with him in keeping it silent. He ultimately took his life. And then she says, my son suffered the equivalent of advanced cancer. Just as some of those are incurable, so is his illness. And medicine failed him because mental illness doesn't get the same respect as other physical illnesses, even as mental illness is just as legitimate a disease. And these things need to be said because we still don't legitimize. Going back to the Jewish community role, you know, I've been studying Jonah again in terms of my own preparation for the High Holy Days as a text really about depression. And when are Jews going to be in synagogue? Yom Kippur. So it's a primary, you know, it's a prime opportunity to get dialogues open, you know, start those dialogues in communities that might not yet do them. So if this even touches one rabbi (laughs) to think about using Jonah as a way in. So you see him as, as depressed. Potentially, yeah, absolutely. Depressed, suicidal. Because why else would he be willing to jump off that ship? And shame, I and think. Shame. Yeah. Once, yeah, I think there was a shame component there, too, for him. Yeah. And I think King Saul was bipolar. So that- Yep. So we have a lot of biblical models, you know. And, we and have- even, even a midrash I read that, that Sarah took her own life when she thought her son had died or was potentially going to be at risk. It's, it's there. It's there if we look. It's there if we look. Yeah. And it's a it's a particular lens. And what it says is what so what is normative? I mean, you know, I once used this argument and I got in a lot of trouble for it, that Abraham had a real problem because of his um intimate relationship with the divine and his willingness to ignore the real people around him, the living human beings uh, who are part of his family. So narcissism. It was a form of narcissism. It was a form of, uh, you know, I'm, antisocial I'm, behavior. Antisocial behavior. As I said, I got in trouble with that with that particular reading because it's it's outside the normative. <laughs> I think it's wonderful, but yeah. he has real trouble with the women in his life. Yeah, <laughs> and with his children. And then you look at Isaac as a result, who is a very closed off person. Right. So if and he suffers to- trauma, and it's and yeah. it's it's an interesting case study for trauma being passed down when something's not dealt with. Yeah. Yeah, like I think that's also another really important thing is that therapy is really important because issues you don't work through don't go away; they just come out in in other ways, and that's how generational trauma happens. So it's really important. It doesn't mean that you can't break cycles, but it means that you can't break cycles if you don't put the work into it, even if you think that you can do something on your own. You know, like, it's you You really have to work through your issues to make sure that, like, breaking the cycle isn't just not wanting to break the cycle. There's a lot of work that you have to put into that. 
It's an interesting thing about the rabbinate is that um, there's a theory that a lot of clergy, not just rabbis, clergy, are wounded healers. Absolutely. And therefore, the advice that many of us are given is to be in therapy or have someone who is a professional to talk to on a regular basis because of the load that we carry and what we and what we come in with we all come in with some kind of stuff so you have to put our stuff somewhere and i think that's true for most human beings we all have stories to tell and and some of them are more acute that would fall into the category of mental illness but the truth i i believe is that we all have have stories that need to be shared in a professional setting of one, sometimes it's short term, sometimes it's long term, but it helps helps one go forward. I yeah, I don't think therapy is just for people who have mental health problems to the point of a diagnosable mental illness. Like like for me, when I first like my journey to getting diagnosed with OCD, like when I first was like, I really need to be in therapy. I went to a talk therapist, which is great. I think for people in that stage it's like a maintaining sort of thing like going to the gym but I was sort of at a point where I needed like something else but it's like therapy isn't just like for like I do like specific like CBT exposure response therapy type stuff like it doesn't have to be that it can just be I have I'm a human being I have emotions I like talk therapy as well like I think it's really important do you think it's important, and I'm going to direct this to you, Pam, that because our world has gotten so much more complex and there's more stuff coming at us, that our ability to negotiate all this different information, all the different stimuli, we can't quite cope with all of the stimuli coming at us. And we add it to ourselves with our devices. So <clears throat> the idea of Shabbat, which is, you know, to just be without all of that is such a necessity in our world more now than even ever. I mean, I think what wisdom comes out of our tradition to say to unplug because we are not allowing ourselves that quiet time for reflection and regrouping. And yes, too much stimuli. That's true true for, for everybody. For everybody. Yeah. I mean, we are, if we are in a mental health crisis for everybody, and of course, the political situation today is adding to that, and we see that at our agency. The anxiety level of people, just because of news coming fast and furious, is terrifying. I also think that, we're creating yeah. bigger crisis than there already was. Yeah, and I, I also I also think that the way our society is structured, like the way the professional world is structured, the education system is structured is so stressful and so anxiety-inducing, it's impossible not to have heightened levels of anxiety. As, like, a student, like, I, like, like, I don't go to high school every day anymore, but, you know, when I did, I would have to, I was always sleep-deprived. I, for me personally, I did an hour-long commute on the subway, and then I was sitting down for, like, seven hours, and then I went home, an hour-long commute, did my homework, got six hours of sleep. Like, that's not—that doesn't breed—that's 
not good for your mental health. <laughs> you could have used your commute time. See, this yeah. is, Shabbat doesn't have to be a 24-hour period. It can yeah. also be how do you build that time into your every day? Yeah. So how do we build like the hour commute as our Shabbat time and call it Shabbat? Because we each can carve out something that serves that same purpose. We need it. It's essential to our mental health, I think. Particularly for those of us who sit at desks, just saying, okay, I'm getting up now for 15 minutes. I'm going to do something completely different. You said before to me that you do your homework 20 minutes on and then 20 minutes off. Mm -hmm. My son actually did that naturally. Uh, (laughs) He... uh, and it, it took him a long time to get everything done, but I think it really worked for him. He'd play his video game, he'd go back to work. He did fine in school. It was yeah. his method, his own self-help mm-hmm. method of mm-hmm. keeping himself. So I have a question for you, Jasmine, because you're here being out about your OCD. Mm-hmm. So I want to find out from you what made that possible and why you're outing yourself and where what stigma you have experienced and why you're willing to put yourself out there. I think for me it was like almost necessary because I had to be my own advocate to receiving mental health care. So I sort of just, and it got to such a bad point. Uh, like when I first got diagnosed with OCD, I was, there's a scale, which is like, I think, um, yeah, the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale, and I was on, like, the extremely severe end of it. And, you know, my parents were, like, shocked to hear that Mm. because I had to really be loud about the fact that I needed help because it was my issues were really more about being dismissed, you know, like... The self-esteem piece. or, Or it's just, like, like, that, like, people sort of thought I wasn't, like, that I was wrong about being mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Ah. If that makes sense, like, I had... Oh, to, you don't have that. Yeah. I didn't agree with you. Yeah. yeah. You're fine, Jasmine. Yeah. You're just fine. Yeah. And it was like, I had to be very... Like, I didn't have, like, space to be... I don't talk about specific things about my OCD. That I do. Like, I sort of... I will sometimes, but it's hard for me to do that. But just, like, having OCD, I had to be very, like, I have this, I really need help, you know? Because otherwise I wasn't going to get it. And I had to do my own research about where I could go. My parents eventually helped me because I just had a real breakdown last year. And, yeah, so, but, like, the thing is, money is an issue with that. Because, like, I don't know, I I can't really speak on this because I'm 18. But, like, um, I was seeing a social worker who wasn't a licensed... Like, she she was licensed to do therapy, but she wasn't a licensed therapist, I think. And I was seeing her for a while. And it was... She was really great. I really liked her, but she didn't understand anything about OCD. She didn't know I had OCD. She diagnosed me with anxiety and depression. And it was just like... And I was like, okay, I was just grateful I was receiving some kind of help and health care. But... Then eventually I was like, I told my parents, I was like, I can't, I have to get treated for OCD. Like, I can't keep, because I would talk about, like, specific things. Like, I would be having intrusive thoughts that people could hear my thoughts. Mm. And, like, they were reading my thoughts. Mm. And, like, my therapist would be like, you're crazy. (laughs) Like, you know? Um, And it's like, I was like, I need, I can't do this anymore. Like, I have to. So I ended up, 
and like we were seeing her because she took our insurance and I ended up having to go someplace that didn't take our insurance and um the person I'm seeing now is great there's like options for I'm at a clinic and I'm seeing an extern because it's cheaper but really like healthcare does not cover right, mental exactly exactly so what I'm in yeah. terms of my question about why yeah I mean there's really an educative piece to yeah. why you're out there and yeah. people need to know yeah I mean it's, first of all not yeah. to dismiss your own <laughs> diagnosis mm-hmm. you know it's it's an opportunity for them to learn from you and yeah. also this problem with the healthcare system is huge yeah so I think it's great that you're getting that information out there yeah I I just like it was really just necessary like I sort of got to a point where I was like I can't I can't my something that my parents didn't understand was why I needed to be diagnosed and it was because I didn't I wanted to feel like it wasn't just me like it wasn't just like I was like horrible you know like I wanted to like under like it was as soon as I got a diagnosis I obviously still had OCD but it got a lot better just from understanding by naming it yeah so, th- so this is the other piece of this. When we name something, we're much more able to contend with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's very interesting because my brother had been diagnosed with bipolar disease when he was a teenager and had been hospitalized. He went on with his life. And basically because he was so successful as he went on with his life, I sort of forgot about this diagnosis until he's about a year before he took his life, he started acting out. And my sister and I were very concerned, assumed his husband was on top of it. And um, after he died, when I talked to his therapist, she said to me, did he ever have a bipolar diagnosis? And I said, yes, when he was a teenager. She said she kept pushing him, wanted him to get a medical eval. He refused and he denied it. And um, he left therapy because he was in a manic phase. He was feeling good. So his inability to embrace this diagnosis, the shame around it, the silence around it was a big piece of um, the problem. And we had assumed he had shared his diagnosis with his spouse and only afterwards found out he never had. So our assumption that his husband was going to be on top of it was off because we didn't want to get involved. Right. Boundaries. The boundary issue. And, you know, when you see something, say something. That is my motto now. Don't assume somebody else knows yep. what's going on. Don't assume. It's, uh, this is... And even, you know, I want to talk a little about synagogue issues because, you know, I hear a lot of my rabbinic colleagues talk about the problem congregants whose mental illness exhibits in the synagogue and who become problems. They're acting out. They don't respect boundaries. They're harassing other congregants for rides, for, you know, they're hoarding the food off the kiddish table, all kinds of behaviors that are considered odd or non-normative. And they often are then thinking about throwing the person out of the synagogue that other people can't tolerate. Other people aren't coming to synagogue because of this mentally ill person who's coming. We have a lot of work to do to educate people around it set boundaries for people who are acting out, you know, that they're... And offer them support. And offer them support. And say, here are some resources. And 
one of the things I remember because, um, you know, when you become a rabbi, you don't get a, an automatic counseling degree. That's a separate degree. So we were all taught that three consultations and then you refer. Mm-hmm. But in order to refer, you need to have a Rolodex. In order to refer, you need to know at least the first stop for somebody. You may not know the last stop where they'll end up, but at least to help them begin a process. And I think that's that's part of the communal responsibility is, is having that Rolodex. I know I've used my Rolodex in a lot of extreme situations where I call, I call the people who are her therapists and I say, you know, help. Uh, here's the situation. What do I do? Who do I refer to? Who do you know that I can refer to? We can't look away from one another. And I always, one of my theories is that totally in a, in a community, we really want to be able to see one another and people want to be seen. Mm-hmm. People want to be seen. So as members of a community, it's our task to see one another. Now you had That's so beautiful because one of my texts that I talk about is the ninth plague of darkness and how that is really the plague of depression. And that what happens is that then they're able to see one another and that being seen is the antidote. That's so beautiful. And it's such a great, great, great way to end. Don't you think? I think so. I I have a prayer that I'm hoping to share. Yes. um, By Elliot Kukla, who's at the San Francisco Bay Area Healing Center, a prayer for healing, a prayer of healing for mental illness. May the one who blessed our ancestors bless all who live with mental illness, our caregivers, families, and friends. May we walk in the footsteps of Jacob, King Saul, Miriam, Hannah, and Naomi, who struggle with dark moods, hopelessness, isolation, and terrors, but survived and led our people. Just as our father Jacob spent the night wrestling with an angel and prevailed, may all who live with mental illness be granted the endurance to wrestle with pain and prevail night upon night. Grace us with the faith to know that although, like Jacob, we may be wounded, shaped, and renamed by this struggle, still we will live on to continue an ever-unfolding, unpredictable path toward healing. May we not be alone on this path, but accompanied by our families, friends, caregivers, ancestors, communities, and the Divine Presence. Surround us with loving-kindness, grace, and companionship, and spread over us a Sukkot Shalom, a shelter of peace and wholeness. And let us say, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Jasmine, for bringing this Thank you, Jasmine. to the table. And uh, to be continued. This is only the important, beginning. Important discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Tehillah Talks. For more information about Tehillah, go to congregationtehillah.org. Tune in next time when our teens continue to reflect on issues of the day through a Jewish lens.